All right, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles and turn as we continue in our study to the, the book of Ezekiel. And we are in Ezekiel chapter 19 this evening. Ezekiel chapter 19. As we come to this, this wonderful text of Scripture, it, it brings us to the end of a very large section uh, chapter 12 to 19, that may not seem, those, uh, those, eight ver- those eight chapters may not seem so significant in light of 48 chapters, only six, uh, a sixth of that text. But that 17% was a significant amount. Some of the most powerful texts that Ezekiel brings to us are these which we have covered in these last chapters. The, uh, the theme has been the, the judgment upon Judah, particularly upon Jerusalem, for their wickedness. It's been expressed as a direct judgment upon Israel or upon Judah or upon Jerusalem. But all of those are the same group, the same audience. Because the Lord is rebuking them for what they have done. And although there is a nationalistic element, as with all prophets, it is primarily individual. And that's what we've seen that has been such a big impact, I believe, as we've looked at these texts. It's been a very new and a graphic section. Chapter 12 focused on really the last big drama. You remember Ezekiel was digging through the wall to show his escape and the exile that would occur and how those remaining in Jerusalem would seek to dig through the wall. And he talks about and prophesies through that vision about how King Zedekiah would be captured and those with him as they go out with their belongings on their back and they would not see at night. And we, we've spoken about how that prophecy is fulfilled in Zedekiah being struck blind immediately after his three sons are killed in his sight as the last thing that he sees. And he's taken into captivity. Just, just a really radical expressions of the horror that's gone on in the nation of Israel. And then it moved from that drama into the direct prophecy of what was going to happen. God, God doesn't want them to misunderstand one of these dramas and think well you know maybe in digging through that wall he's telling us that we need to have bigger houses and do a remodel Um, that's kind of probably the interpretation I'd get right and he says no 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 let's make sure you know so he he tells them in direct prophecy chapters 13 to 15 was more of this direct prophecy only remember it was in those figurative terms it talked about the different professions it talked about the idea of the builder who did not repair the breach in the wall or who had the bad whitewash or the seamstress who was preparing the wrong garments and there's all those numbers of different professions that are represented chapter 16 was that extended allegory the the longest one in the book of Ezekiel in the most dramatic language in the whole book. And it spoke, we remember the allegory is simply a long parable. It is a a figurative story that tells us spiritual truths, but unlike a parable, which conveys one primary truth, this has a number of them. And it talked about Israel as the abandoned child that the Lord picked up out of its blood, raised up as a young woman, and, and, and put upon special garments 
all of the silks and linens and, and ornamented with the beautiful earrings and bracelets and prepared her as a queen and then the harlotry which she carried forward with all of those details. So there's a number of truths that are couched in this one allegorical story. Then in chapter, uh, 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 chapter 17, we saw a parable, a very small spiritual story that relates to uh, a, a known truth, and then a direct prophecy, and then back to that parable. And uh, that, that section of Ezekiel 17 was about the eagle Remember snatching the little vine off the cedar tree? And, and, and so we had another type there. Chapter 18 was actually a proverb. The, uh, the children who have their teeth set on edge because of the sour grapes of the fathers, which showed us that it, it is again an individual responsibility and not a nationalistic situation. And it, this had a very specific poetic structure, but yet it was, it, was, it was very different in the fact that it communicated to us this unique way through this expression of a proverb. And now in chapter 19, we see the seventh different way that Ezekiel communicates. I mean, th- that's stunning. Usually in the, in the prophetic text, we will see two different ways that a prophet communicates he communicates via uh, a direct revelation from god uh, or he will communicate via figurative language ezekiel has used seven different types as he has discussed this we began with direct prophecy with prophecy of god of a visual image where he was in the presence of god we've seen an ecstatic vision where he's been taken to jerusalem didn't actually see it but was taken there in a vision we we've seen the direct prophecy of god where god speaks to him and tells him to say that to the nation we've seen the drama that he's carried forward We have seen this allegory, then we've seen the shorter parable, we've seen the figurative expressions of the different professions, and now we see a lament, a lament. This is the the same thing that is the same structure as Jeremiah's book of Lamentations, those five chapters that focus also on Jerusalem, the the outlying being uh, um, judgment and Judah and Jerusalem and Jerusalem and judgment, kind of a, a, a sandwich structure, if you will, in Lamentations. That you notice that this looks in chapter 19 a little bit like what we would expect Hebrew poetry to look like. There's a very specific grammatical style that occurs in this lament. And, and it's, it's like, a, you know, when we think of a, of a boxer, if you ever, I used to box when I was a little kid. Um, I was probably... I don't know, six, seven years old in Montana. And I was in this um, AA boxing. I don't even remember what the name of it was. I was not a very good boxer. I think we, we practiced and had one boxing match and got a bloody nose with the first shot and I was done. That was the end of my boxing career. I was crying. My mom was crying. The other kid was crying. So yeah, that was it. But in boxing, don't ask me why we went there. That's not in the notes. But uh, all for free. Be better tomorrow after a little pain medication. So if you want to come by and get the rest of the story. Just kidding. Um, But in boxing, we talk about the one-two punch. 
you know, there, there's that first, there's that setup punch that kind of gets them, and then sometimes an uppercut that finishes them off. In lament grammar, there's a three-two punch, and we see that in our text. Look, for instance, and not that we want to get too far off on it, but I do want you to see this. Look, for instance, at verse three. It's very, very clear there. When she brought up one of her cubs, that's, that's the three, then the following two, he became a lion. Then the next three, two, and he learned to tear his prey, he devoured men. So you see this three, two structure. Now you don't necessarily identify in the English the three parts to two parts, so you have to take my word that it's there. But even in the lengths, we see that. We see that first longer piece, then a shorter piece, and a longer piece, and a shorter piece. And it repeats throughout uh, essentially the entire text. And that identifies this to us as a lament, and it's a very specific type of literature that is nowhere else in Ezekiel. And really, the only other place it exists in this kind of prominence is the book of Lamentations. So good for us to recognize this. It'll, It'll get us some pictures as we move along. Because of all of this, uh, I've titled uh, our message for tonight, Is This a Picture of Power and Production? Is this a picture of power and production? That is the question we need to ask ourselves. So as we do, and we consider this figurative structure, look at the first verses with me in verse 1 of chapter 19. As for you... Take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What was your mother? A lioness among lions? She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion. And he learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. And when she saw, as she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he walked about among the lions. He became a young lion. He learned to tear his prey. He devoured men. He destroyed their fortified cities and laid waste their cities. And the land and its fulfillment were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. Then... Nations set against him on every side from their provinces, and they spread their nets over him. He was captured in their pit. They put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel. So we see immediately this idea of the picture of power Because the lion is the exemplification of that power. And because of that, our first point in these first nine verses is, is this the powerful lion? Is this the powerful lion? It falls in line with our title, is this a picture of power and production? So with that, is this the powerful lion? Verse 1 introduces the literature and the audience to us. It tells us that it is a lament and that that lament is for the princes of Israel. The princes of Israel are effectively the last kings. You remember that the final king, Zedekiah, Ezekiel would not call a king because he was not of the proper lineage and so he was only called a prince. And the way that all of the kings acted, which is what this whole chapter is about, 
tells us why he didn't call any of them kings. Because they didn't deserve it. And he was extremely emotional as he brought forward this lament about them and the result of their darkness and all that they had done. So it says that it is a lament for these princes of Israel. And then verse 2 reveals the figurative language where it says, Your mother. Notice also that that same phrase occurs at the beginning of verse 10. Your mother. It's not speaking about uh, the, the literal mother. Now there's been some who have said that for this first section that this may refer to the, the wife of Josiah who was the mother, the physical mother of the first king that's talked about. That may or may not be the case. The fact that it's mentioned twice tells us that really this is more an expression that refers to Israel in general. Also, we see the questions revealed here in our title. What was your mother? And hence, our questions, is this the powerful lion? The, the lioness that's figure, is, is a figure of power. If you're not aware, and, and I'm sure you probably are, um, from a number of different uh, uh, documentaries, TV documentaries, as well as uh, some, some fabulous, uh, not-so-theologically uh, correct movies like uh, um, the, uh, the Lion King, um, you know, the, the lioness is the one who hunts for... The, the, the rest of the lions for the pride. She goes out and she's the one who does the killing. It's not the big lion with the big mane. He kind of hangs out and does the eating. Uh, it's the lioness who goes out and does and really is the terror uh, amongst the, the, the rest of the animals in, in her killing and her prowess in that. So we see that represented here and that is the figure of power. It's interesting how often lions appear in the Old Testament. You know, when we think of, and I, I've mentioned before that, that there are nine different words in, in the Eskimo languages for snow, and of course they have a lot of kinds of snow, so that makes sense. In Hebrew, there are five different words for lion. Lions are really powerful, and, and we see them used a lot of times. And if you think back, you think back to Judges and to Samson, right? The lion with the honey in the carcass. We think back to the time of Balaam and, and the other prophets who have seen lions and who lions have tore uh, the individuals regarding them, uh, 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 Elisha and others. So lions are a very prominent theme in the Old Testament and very strong indications in the, the nation of Israel. So this could well be Josiah's wife. Um, she was indeed a woman of influence. If you looked at some texts and you want to look up on your own, 2 Kings 24.12 speaks a little about her, as well as Jeremiah 13.18. That's 2 Kings 24.12 and Jeremiah 13.18. And I'll leave it to you good Bereans to see whether you think that she is referenced there as the lioness. But the first of her cubs in verse 3 is Jehoahaz. He was the first king after Josiah. He came into power and he reigned for a really long time, three months, that's all, and he was extremely wicked. And that's exactly what the text says in verse 3. 
She brought the one cub, he became a lion, and he learned to tear his prey and to devour men. He moved his kingdom forward by wickedness, and he sought to, uh, to usurp the power of the king of Egypt. And in fact, we find out, and we will see shortly, that after his three months, he was taken into captivity in Egypt. He was, he was ruthless, and that's what's exemplified here. And he was also, as he expressed himself as a lion, he was captured like a lion. That he was the, and that's how they would capture a lion. They would actually put a hook into the cheek of that lion, somewhat akin to the way horses, uh, the bridle of a horse works. When it pulls, it pulls back against its jaw, and so it keeps it uh, in the direction mostly that you want it to go. Um, but the same kind of thing with the hook in the lion's mouth. That's how they would capture it. And that's what verse 4 says. He was captured in a pit and then they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. So this is where he was taken into captivity. Verse 5 describes then the waiting that went on uh, as he was taken into captivity. There is another king that occurs here that is not described for us. And, uh, and that king actually was uh, a better king. That was um, uh, Jehoiakim. He was a king for three years. And he's not illuminated here as one of the cubs because he was, he was out of the lineage. Remember, he was an uncle. So he was not part of the physical lineage. And so that's what some commentators believe that it may be Josiah's wife because there is this weight that could be exemplified of her. And she thought that her hope was lost. So she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion as well. This is Jehoiachin, who was her grandson, the son of Jehoahaz, the first one who reigned three months, taken captive to Egypt. Now comes Jehoiachin, another long reign, three months, exact same amount of time. And we'll see that then he is taken captivity to Babylon as the text continues to allude to us. Notice in verse 6, he's also wicked, just as Jehoahaz was. Almost the same phraseology as verse 3. Became a young lion, learned to tear his prey, and devoured men. He is another one who by his wickedness and by the way that he treated men moves his kingdom forward in, again, uh, an unrighteous and wicked manner. But notice in verse 7, he is even more so. He destroyed their fortified towers and laid waste their cities. And the land and its fullness were appalled because of the sound of his roaring. He basically was destroying his own land for his power and was carrying forth in an amazing and horrifically bad way. Verse 8 also shows the same kind of uh, issues carrying forward and it is, is like verse 4, it shows the nations were raised up against him. The nations set against him on every side from their provinces. They spread their net over him and he was captured in their pit. The, the rising of the nations here is a really important part for us because it doesn't happen because they were righteous. Egypt didn't rise up against Jehoahaz because of the horrors that he was committing against his people. Babylon didn't rise up against, Jehoi against Jehoiachin because he was such a wicked man. 
No, it was because God was directing these powers to rise up and to punish Israel for their wickedness. These were not righteous nations. It's interesting, and there's a little piece here that I will again leave you with as uh, maybe something just to, to dive into and, and follow through a little bit. But there is a connection here in verses 7 and 8 that, uh, that, that show us this first phrase in verse 7, he destroyed their fortified towers. If you start looking into the original um, languages and you see it in several of your New American Standards in the margin, it says that it's literally translated as he knew their widows. He knew their widows. Um, that, that gives us a deeper indication of the depravity of Jehoiakim and all that he was doing and laid waste their cities. If you, um, you know, dive through some of those texts, you will see that there is a, a wonderful connection there that, that shows more of the depth behind what was going on in, in, in that world. And, and there are some, uh, uh, some other texts that will give you a deeper indication of, of all of those connections of that wickedness and, and all that happened if you kind of follow some of those cross-references. So just if you want to pursue that further, I'd encourage you to do so. It is a pretty interesting, although uh, even more brutal study. But all of this is evidence of God's judgment. And how does that judgment finally come in verse 9? They put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in hunting nets so that his voice would be heard no more on the mountain of Israel. The, the cage and hooks describe the way that a king was often taken captive. They would take a very large nose ring and they would pierce his nose. Now, we see, you know, young folks today, and some of them will have nose rings and so forth. Um, that just looks like that's got to hurt really bad. You know, I mean, if it's over here on a side like this, or over on here on the side like this, that's not what they're doing here. They're going between the cartilage and the centerpiece of the nose, and they're putting a full circle through that so that they can actually chain him by his nose. And, and that is the expression of the power that they're exemplifying. There is, in one of the ancient texts, there is a discussion that talks about Ashurbanipal, who was one of the nasty, wicked kings of Assyria. And he writes about how he took the king of Assyria captive and put a hook in his nose and a jaw in his lip and put him in a kennel along with the dogs and jackals, and set him before the gates of his city so that he could be viewed before the gates of Nineveh. I mean, so they, they were serious about making uh, uh, a show uh, of, of these kings that they would catch. So this is what's being expressed here. We know that Jehoiakim from some of the other biblical and extra-biblical records was captured. Again, three months in reign. He came to his role as king at 18 years old. He reigned for three months. He was taken to Babylon. He was kept in captivity for 37 years until he was 55 years old. He was eventually released and at that time, of course, he had no chance of any return to the throne or any lineage to continue in his name. 
So this is, this is the first question of our first point. Is this a powerful lion? Initially, when we see some of the ways that they're tearing prey and the things that they're doing, their wickedness, we would say, well, it, it kind of appears like it. But in the end, there is no expression of power. This, this is not a picture of power. This is a picture of depravity. And if there is a picture of power, it is not by the lion, but it is by God who is taking control and caging him. Well, our first point, is this a powerful lion, transitions to our second point in verse 10, and that is, is this the fruitful vine? Is this the fruitful vine? Israel is supposed to be powerful and fruitful, are they not? Is that not why God took them in to the land of milk and honey? That you will cast out the Canaanite who lives there by God's power. So they were to be a powerful people because they were moved by God. They were to be a fruitful people. It was a land of milk and honey. You don't have to go in and build houses. You don't have to go and plant orchards. You, know, you don't have to go buy those little satsuma trees and wait till they get big and yummy and you can bring them all to your church family. They're already there. right? You just move in and start chomping. Enjoy those houses. So they were supposed to be powerful and fruitful. But as our first question showed, not so much. And as our second point is going to bring forward as well, is this a fruitful vine? Look at verse 10 with me. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds, so that it was seen in the heights with the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury. It was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered. The fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land. And fire has gone out from its branch. It has consumed its shoots and fruit. So that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. Well, as we switch now to this second point, we also move to the third and final king who Ezekiel did not call a king, nor does he hear the prince Zedekiah, the one who is not of the kingly line. The mother is still the figurative speech of Israel at the beginning of verse 10, and the vine pictured is the land of Israel. Whenever you see a vine in the Old Testament, it is almost always a figurative reference to the land of Israel. You see it very, very often. You see that vine metaphor coming forward in a, a number of different locations. Ezekiel 15 and 17, we've seen it. You see it in Psalm 80. You see it in Isaiah chapter 5, an extremely powerful reference that the Lord goes back to often as he rebukes the Pharisees and the nation of Israel and calls them the unfruitful vine. So in both Testaments, we see this symbolic representation. The expected fruitfulness, again, takes us back to Psalm 1 there in verse 10, planted by waters. You know, and we think of that, that beautiful picture that's conveyed for us in Psalm 1 of the man who is 
planted by waters and is nourished by those and grows in an amazing way as a result of where he is placed. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates day and night. That is the tree firmly planted by water and yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers. So also was this vineyard planted by waters and fruitful of branches because of the abundant water. So it was meant to be fruitful. But this connection of fruitfulness takes us back to the, the idea of, uh, of did they follow through? Did they really carry that forward? Deuteronomy 8 and verses 7 to 9 have a, a similar picture. And I want to read you a few verses out of that text from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 7. It, it brings us a, a great expression of this idea. Deuteronomy 8 and 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in the valley and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper." So there is this fruitfulness that's being brought forward in this picture. We could even go all the way back to Genesis 49. Does that ring a bell to you? Genesis 49 is the text where Jacob is blessing each of his 12 sons. And in Genesis 49 and verse 8, we see the very familiar verse that talks about the scepter which will not depart from between the feet of Judah. And we'll see that that same discussion comes up here. In fact, if you want to do a little digging, Genesis 49, 8 to 12 speaks about this same concept, as does Deuteronomy 32, 14. So if you want to have a little Old Testament Berean study here, dig into those three texts alongside of these four verses, and you will see some amazing parallels. Verse 11, again, reminds us of that scepter of Judah because it had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds. There's this great exaltation that's being brought forward here. It was seen in the heights because of its branches. But then in verse 12, we have a radical change. It's plucked up in its fury in verse 12. Why? Because of their wickedness? Yes, but primarily because they forgot God. What has been the message we've seen over and over in Ezekiel? It's idolatry. Adultery, idolatry connected with adultery. Idolatry in, in every different fashion. But the primary focus is the idolatry of forgetting God. Although Judah's decline, as we look at it historically, we may say it seems kind of slow. I mean, they were, as we look back and we can put on our, our glasses and step apart from the world in which they live, we can say, you know, they were wicked kind of the whole time. I mean, they went into the land and they did okay under Joshua, but then we get to Judges and it's like a downhill race course. 
And the further they go, the more it seems like a cliff that they're just falling off because of their wickedness. And we think, well, wow, that was, you know, what was that time? They came into the land, uh, you know, somewhere in, in the, the 1400 B.C. range. And this isn't clear till, till 600 B.C. So there's 800 years of this depravity. Well, that seems like kind of a long time. God took a long time to judge them. This text, beloved, is telling us that it, it was not a long time. It was a sudden and decisive place where God made the decision that they would be done. He may have allowed them to continue, but there was a place where he plucked them up in fury, where they were cast to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit, and that strong branch is torn off, and so that the the whole vine withered and the fire consumed it. It is a very brunt, blunt effect that happens. Although Judah's decline seemed slow, it came in sudden strokes from God's wrath, as Charles Feinberg notes. And verse 12 is full of this suddenness. The east wind here is emblematic for us of, of Babylon, who was the one who took them captivity. And it is the transplanting in verse 13 in Babylon uh, and their captivity in 586 that results and shows of the dryness and the inability that they have to grow. They were almost hopeless and helpless in this environment which they had been planted. And so also in verse 14, the fire had gone out from its branch, it had consumed its shoots and fruit, so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Notice in verse 14, this, this has not physically occurred yet, but it's written as if it's past tense. Ezekiel is so emotional about what he knows is coming, he writes, its fire has gone out. It has consumed its shoots, as if it's already over. Now this will be happening in finality in about five years as Jerusalem finally falls. But he sees it as over. The responsibility here rests with Zedekiah, now reigning as king. Again, never referred to as king, but prince. And, and the emotion describes all that Ezekiel is feeling as he sees the responsibility of Zedekiah. And it brings this powerful condemnation and a powerful lament. But there's a couple things that it really brings to attention for us. That we cannot expect that if there are those who are unfaithful in our lives, that God is going to always be long-suffering with them. When we consider Romans 1, there is a time in the depravity of a man's heart and mind and action that God gives them over. And so we must recognize and we cannot be complacent with those in our families that are living apart from the Lord in their sin to assume that God's going to continue to allow that to happen because there is a time where he will, as he did with Israel, come, as verse 12 tells and pluck them up in fury and cast them to the ground and dry up their fruit. And so we have to have an urgency and a fervor in us. And the other thing that we have to understand, I think, that is so picturesque about this text is what we learn from texts like Romans chapter 13. The, the very familiar text to us speaking from Paul's discussion about governments. 
Every person, Romans 13, 1, is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, that is, from the government, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. First Peter 2 brings a similar discussion to us. And in First Peter 2 and verse 13, we read these words. 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to a governor as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorant and foolish men. Think of the horror and the depravity that was going on at this time, certainly amongst Israel. But those who were judging Israel, how wicked were the Assyrians who came Upon Israel. How wicked were the Egyptians that took Jehoahaz king? How wicked was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians? But God used them. We live in a day and age where, where, where we see things around us and, and we tend to speculate and we tend to become complacent and complaining about the government that exists. And, and I have been there. But we cannot. God is using it. There are no authorities except from God. Amen? Sometimes we might think, what in the world? But it is not for us to think what in the world. All we're called to do, as Titus tells us, is to pray for them. And to pray for their salvation. And to recognize whether they appear good or evil, God is using them. And so whatever comes in our world, we need to recognize and hold to these kind of texts to say, you know, it isn't that bad, and even if it gets that bad, God is still in charge. And we need to encourage one another with these words, as also Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, to recognize that God is carrying out His plan. He is amongst us. He is doing a great work in our lives, in this church, and in this world, but we are his instruments. We are those who must recognize that his wrath is coming and it will come individually on people before it comes universally upon this planet. And until that time, we are his hands and feet to carry forth the blessed message of salvation. So let's be encouraged to recognize the blessings of doing so and his perfect plan amidst the judgment that will go on for it is not anything that we will have to endure.